Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I started to realize that the habits that had made me a great student were really holding me back as an adult now that it was time to like set my own course and figure out what I truly wanted to do. That desire to get the gold star achievement and sort of a assignment mentality where the task is laid out for you by a coach or a teacher or a mentor, all of that had to change for me to lead a happy and fulfilling life now that school was over. I had to figure out who I actually wanted to be and not who other people wanted me to be. Um, and at one point, you know, early on when I was starting to realize this, I even like opened up my closet and I looked at all my clothes and I suddenly realized like, oh my God, all of this is for other people right? Like I had this closet full of really cute, uncomfortable dresses that I had subconsciously chosen because they fit with the person it seemed like other people wanted me to be. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Kate, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It is my pleasure to have you here. So I found out about your work by way of your publicist who sent me a copy of your uh, journal Around the World and Back Again, uh, which is a travel journal. And as somebody who has spent my entire life moving from country to country and city to city, uh, I knew that, you know, whatever you had to say would resonate with me. But uh, before we get started and start talking about all of that, I want to start with what I think is a really relevant question, given your background and what we're talking about. And that is, where in the world did you grow up? And how did where you grew up end up influencing the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, so I was born in Washington, D.C., um, but didn't live there long. My parents moved to Bozeman, Montana from there because they uh, had gotten to know each other in Colorado and really always envisioned themselves returning to the West. So when I was six, they got an opportunity to do that because um, my job, my dad got a job at Montana State University. And um, so we moved to Montana and that is where I grew up. And man, Montana is just one of the best places on the planet. I love it so much. I think um, being from the West has been a big part of what's shaped my character. Uh, and I, you know, having traveled all over the world, I think we we sort of define ourselves by contrast, right? So when you go to a new and different place, I think that allows you to see more about your own culture, which can be really hard to define. 
And um, I think by traveling around the world, I was able to see more about the culture that I grew up with and how uh, friendly people in the American West are with strangers and how open they are and um, how open to different kinds of people and uh, different ways of thinking about individuality they are. And I think that's something that has really shaped me growing up. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I love that you brought up this whole idea of different ways of thinking about individuality and friendliness, because I think that, you know, for a lot of people, the perception, at least, you know, of people in Montana is that they never leave. And <laughs> that it's this, you know, sort of just open, you know, land of, you know, ranches and mountains. I mean, I've spent a little bit of time in Montana, and you're absolutely right. The people there were wonderful. Uh, but I wonder, you know, I, and I'm guessing there are people who pretty much stay, you know, there all their lives. And what I wonder is, you know, when you come back, um, what did you see as the contrast uh, between the environment that you were raised in uh, versus the you know dozens of environments that you probably experienced through your travels? Yeah, so one of the biggest um, <laughs> kind of the first time that I ever had an experience like this was uh, I had the chance to study abroad in college, and um, I lived in Marseille, France, for four months, which is a just amazing place. And um, I in the town that I grew up in it's really normal for people to greet each other on the street. Just when you're passing somebody, you know, you'll say, Hey, how, how are you? How's it going? And, um, even when you're driving and you're passing another car on like a dirt road in particular, you do the little like finger wave from the steering wheel, you know? And, um, I always thought of that as just being totally normal because that's what I grew up with and that was what I knew. And so, uh, when I was in France for four months at the, the early part of the time, uh, that I had just moved there. I mean, I remember sort of bouncing down the street and greeting everyone that I saw with this great big bonjour and a huge grin. And obviously that is, <laughs> that is not normal in France. <laughs> um, and so I think, you know, people kind of looked at me strangely and greeted me back, but I could tell that this was not something that was normally done. Um, and I think through that experience, I, I learned that that is something that I grew up with. And, I also, in thinking about it more, decided it was something that I really like about myself and and where I come from. And, you know, I don't do that anymore when I go to a place where that's not the norm. <laughs> um, but I think that experience really taught me that, yeah, I appreciate that about where I'm from. Well, so I, I think for me, what I wonder is, why isn't that the norm? Because I think that whenever I talk to people who grow up in environments like that or small towns, it seems that there is this sense of community that exists in places like this where everybody seems to know everybody, which has its you know pros and cons, obviously. Uh, but there also seems to be this depth of a bond and, and connection in these places. And I kind of wonder why that doesn't exist uh, in other places and you know what we can learn from that. You know, I would love it if my town was like that. Granted, I live in Boulder, Colorado, so everybody here is really friendly too. But sure. I came here from California, where in California, it's funny, I think we had Adam uh, Smiley Pazlowski here, who just wrote a book called Friendship in the Age of Loneliness. And there was a line, he said, on the West Coast, when people say they want to hang out with you, don't assume that that's actually true. They just say that. <laughs> they're, and it's true. They're yeah. flaky as hell. And yeah. um, so I wonder, you know, why is it that that sense of community isn't more prevalent? And what could we gain from that? Ah, oh, that's a really good question. I mean, it's sort of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, I do love this sort of openness with strangers where we greet people and, you know, we say we want to hang out and everything, but it's also a little bit superficial, right? I mean, or at least it can be. There's this sense of like, if you ask someone how they are, you kind of have to say, oh, I'm good, even if they're having a terrible day, which <laughs> sort of makes no sense. And I don't know. I wonder if in places where it's not quite as common to be quite that open and friendly with strangers, if 
there's more authentic connection early on when you do get a chance to connect with somebody. And I'm not sure if that's true or not, but I'd be curious to know. Yeah. So what are the misperceptions do you think that media creates uh, of places like the ones where you grew up? Because I think that, you know, for those of us who are, you know, in fairly liberal states or on the coast, we look at the middle of the country and we're like, yeah, it's a bunch of racist Trump supporters, which we all know is not true. Right, but right. But the media perpetuates that perception to a degree. And Montana in particular, like I said, my idea of Montana is basically people who hunted fish and, you know, you have Big Sky, where I've been fortunate enough to snowboard. But beyond that, I don't really know anything right. about it. Yeah, totally. I mean, and now I live in Boise, Idaho, which, um, you know, people think of Idaho the exact same way. And um, I think especially right now, this is so valid because, you know, things feel really, really polarized in the country right now. And I think that can be really hard. And, um, you know, in some ways, it's... uh it's kind of like you can draw a parallel between that and and travel, which is really when you get to know anybody on an actual deep individual level, you're going to find you have a lot in common with them. Um, you just have to get through to that point. You know, you have to sort of take uh, the stereotypes about who they are and and what you think you know about them and throw it out the window, or you're never going to get to know the real them. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's that's true in America just as much as it's true if I were to hop on a plane and go to China right now. Yeah. So I have to ask, where in the world does this wanderlust of yours come from? Was it instilled by parents? Was it something that was common, you know, where you grew up? And are there people where you grew up who never left? Um, It very much comes from my parents. So the job that took my dad to Montana State um, was the chance to be the head of their study abroad program. And uh, so basically, it was my dad's job. And I mean, such an awesome job, but he got to fly all over the world and basically set up sister relationships with universities in those places so that um, Montana State students could study abroad there and vice versa. And um, it was especially cool because while he was setting up uh, these sister relationships, he would end up going to specific places again and again. So uh, when I was kid, there when I was a kid, there was sort of like this Japan era where he was going to Japan a lot. Um, and then there was a Morocco era where he was setting up a relationship with a school there. So he was going to Morocco all the time. And I think that not only, of course, inspired me to travel in so many ways, but also gave me a greater sense of what it's like to get to know a place better than to just go there once, which is something mm-hmm. that um, that's really important to me now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I went to Brazil as a tourist in, uh, I think, 2004. And then I went and, you know, spent six months there as a student. And it was a wildly different experience. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, nothing is like getting to actually live in a place and, and really get to know it. Those have been the best travel experiences of my life for sure. Yeah. So uh, one thing I wonder as, you know, with a father who is the study abroad coordinator, you know, from all of the various people I've talked to from all of the various research that I've done and, and, you know, books I've read, it seems like a gap year is something that is invaluable or study abroad is valuable and your dad happens to be in an educational institution, yet this isn't something we actively encourage students to do. And I wonder why that is, because my parents weren't buying the value of a study abroad until my sister got to Berkeley and she ended up going to France. And when I went back to grad school, I told my dad, absolutely, I'm going to spend a semester abroad. Yeah. Oh, man. I think it is one of the best possible things you could do. Um, and especially not just a gap year where you're, you know, staying in your own country, but a gap year where you're able to travel. I don't think there's a single better thing that <laughs> that you could do for yourself or your kid, you know, if you're a parent. Um, I, uh, in addition to studying abroad in college, um, I was lucky enough to get to spend a year in Greece after college uh, teaching there. And it just, I mean, absolutely changed my life. Like, I think um, it was the first time that I really 
was able to be independent. Um, and, you know, coming from transitioning out of my school years where I always had homework or other stuff to do, um, and going and spending this time teaching, uh, I had a fairly light teaching schedule, which is really lucky. And, um, so outside of the lesson planning that I needed to do, I really got to kind of determine what I wanted to do with my time for the first time in my life. And I chose to spend that time just exploring and going into the city. And I was, uh, I was living in this college dormitory because I was teaching on the campus of a uh, boarding school. It was a high school that had a college involved as well. And so, uh, the school housed me in the college dorm with, um, students my age from all over the Balkans and Greece and Eastern Europe. And, um, I think having, that experience where I actually had free time for one of the first times in my life. And I had time to be able to spend with people my age from all over the world. I was invaluable for determining the person that I wanted to be moving forward um, and getting to try out different ways of life and learning about um, the different ways that people approach ways to spend their time. It was absolutely fascinating. I think it really made me who I am today. Yeah. So two questions come from that. Uh, you know, your dad doing what he did did he encourage any particular career paths or, you know, what is it that put you on the trajectory that you're on today that, you know, it led you down this path of writing books and doing creative work? Yeah. So, um, my, my parents were really wonderful parents and they, they really encouraged me to just do my best and try tons of different things. Um, and I really looked up to my dad growing up and, um, I think very naturally that led to me wanting to be an academic. Um, and I, let's see here. I, how to tell this story. <laughs> it, it's kind of funny to like, look at your, your life story and your trajectory and, and try to pinpoint the moments where things happen. But, um, after college, I was fairly certain that I wanted to be a professor for a living. Um, partly because really school had been my entire life up until that point. And so there really weren't other things that felt natural or like a natural extension of who I was besides sort of continuing life in school. Um, and so after college, I applied for grad school and also this grant that ended up taking me to Greece. And um, after Greece, I had deferred my grad school acceptance. So that was what I did next. But being abroad for the first time right before that had kind of started to kick in some thinking about what I truly wanted. And I really unsurprisingly found myself unsure of whether I wanted to go on and pursue a PhD and become a professor, which had been my plan all along. And um, at the same time, higher education jobs were kind of a gamble. Um, so I asked this really great professor that I had at the time if he thought that I should go on to get my PhD and sort of what his thoughts were. And his advice was, if you are 100% sure that that's what you want to do with your life, then yes, you should do it. But if you're not, you know, maybe you shouldn't. The job market is kind of bleak right now and there's really no way to know how it will pan out. And so if you're not totally sure that's what you want, it might not be worth it. And then, so I have this advice is kind of like ringing in my head and uh, sort of on the heels of getting that advice, grad school ended. And it was like this chasm just sort of opened up in front of me where for the first time in my life, I really had no idea what I wanted or or what I wanted to do next. And um, I was a really good student all through school um, and college and, and grad school. And so because I didn't really know what else to do, I uh, sort of followed my good student habits into likely jobs for English degrees, which is what I had. I studied literature. 
Um, and so I tried some nonprofit work and some library work, but I never really found anything that felt like home to me professionally. And I think working the transition from school to work is a huge challenge. And I think that working identity can be particularly challenging. So I never felt found a job that really felt like me. And um, also, you know, with these sort of good student habits that I had for the first time in my life, there really wasn't much of an ability to like get a gold star for anything, you know. And uh, for the first time in my life, I was in a situation where that sense of achievement that I had always gotten from doing well on sort of assignments given to me by other people needed to come from myself and from that intrinsic knowledge that you're doing your best and you're doing a good job. But I think when you're so used to getting gold stars from other people, figuring out how to gain satisfaction from giving them to yourself can be really challenging. And um, figuring out what you want in the first place and not what other people want for you is a really long process if you're not used to it. So... Mm-hmm. I started to realize that the habits that had made me a great student were really holding me back as an adult now that it was time to like set my own course and figure out what I truly wanted to do. That desire to get the gold star achievement and sort of a assignment mentality where the task is laid out for you by a coach or a teacher or a mentor, all of that had to change for me to lead a happy and fulfilling life now that school was over. I had to figure out who I actually wanted to be and not who other people wanted me to be. Um, and at one point, you know, early on when I was starting to realize this, I even like opened up my closet and I looked at all my clothes and I suddenly realized like, oh my God, all of this is for other people, right? <laughs> like I had this closet full of really cute, uncomfortable dresses <laughs> that I had subconsciously chosen because they fit with the person it seemed like other people wanted me to be. And, um, Right around that time, because I wasn't happy at work, I was returning to things that really made me happy in my spare time. So I was doing a lot of drawing at home. Um, And actually, an artist is the very first thing that I said I wanted to be when I was a kid. Um, And then, you know, I kind of got on this academic path, but I had always loved drawing and taking a lot of art classes and had always loved creative things like writing and drawing and acting and So in the evenings, I would kind of casually do some drawing at home as a way to relax and feel like I was doing something just for me. And uh, one day we had a friend over for brunch and we were standing in a room in our house where I'd hung up some pieces on the wall that I had done. And the friend was looking at them and he took out his wallet and handed me a $20 bill and said, if this is what it's going to take to get you to do this, I want prints of these ones and I want them within two weeks. He's a really good friend, and I have since thanked him profusely. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, something kind of just clicked. Um, I think I, for the first time, really like put myself in the driver's seat about what I actually wanted and could make happen for myself. And that took the form of a side hustle that sort of said no to the professional track that I had been on and yes to something I had always loved, but had kind of accepted the cultural narrative that it wasn't a great career choice um, for financial reasons. Mm-hmm. And um, I started a little illustration business when I was 25 uh, and one year out of grad school. And giving myself a project like that that was ongoing and fun and creative and completely independent really made me feel like I was doing something for myself in a context where I was having a hard time doing that in my my daily work life. Um, and, and so in my spare time outside of work, I dove into this little world of creativity and business. And I kind of shockingly discovered that I really loved the business aspect of it too. 
Um, so I worked super hard and went from a full-time job with a side hustle to a part-time job and a little more expanded side hustle. And then three years into it, I was able to go full-time with it where I was just working for myself. And I've been doing that full-time for five years now. Wow. Well, so many questions come from that. Um, I think the first thing is you had that moment where you questioned whether you wanted to be a professor and you had it at such a young age. And I'm wondering why you were self-aware enough to question the possibility that you were going down the wrong path at such a young age and other people are not. Honestly, I really think it was travel. Like, I think it was that year of being in Greece and taking myself out of the context where everything was familiar to me and everything was sort of reliable and stable and I could predict how things would go. Um, I think when you throw yourself into a totally new context where you're kind of having to stay on your feet a little more and, and be nimble and um, also at the same time opening yourself up to such different ways of thinking and different ways of approaching the world and different definitions of the good life and what that looks like that I think your own definition starts to expand a little bit or at least like the door opens, right? Um, and that that was what led me to question sort of this this idea I had for how my life would go was when it didn't resonate with the new things I was bringing into my life as a result of my experience abroad. So you mentioned earlier that you um, actually spent some time teaching in Greece. And I wonder, as somebody who has, you know, had this lifelong passion for education prior to doing what you do, what did you notice as the contrast uh, between how people are educated here, how education shapes value systems and choices, and how it differs from the various places that you've been and particularly where you've taught? Oh, boy, that's a really good question. Um, I honestly, it wasn't as different as you would imagine, um, especially, and I should actually, I should clarify here that the school that I was at was actually founded by Americans. So it was very much Greek and the teachers were Greek, but it had the ideals of the American education system. So it wasn't as different as you would think. Um, and really, I think, honestly, I think I learned as much from them as, as they learned from me. They taught me so much about, um, being in a new place and, and taking on a leadership role when things feel really challenging, um, which is often really hard to do. And uh, I honestly, I'm just so grateful for that experience because it was amazing. I'm actually still in touch with a lot of my former students, and it's so neat to see them out in the world now doing things after graduation. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com/tapiphone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. So one thing that you mentioned multiple times was this idea of doing things for other people versus doing things for yourself. And I think that for so much of our lives, we're conditioned to do things to please other people, you know, whether it's parents, whether it's our peers to try to fit in without even realizing it. Uh, Why do you think that is? And how do we stop actually doing things for other people and doing them for ourselves? And how do we identify what we're doing for ourselves versus what we're doing for other people? It, oh man, it is so hard. And honestly, it's, I feel like I am still on that journey. Um, <laughs> you know, I think we all are in a, in a lot of ways. Um, and even like there are times where it's felt like I've made a ton of progress on it, but looking back, maybe not so much. Like for instance, <laughs> <laughs> like for instance, there was a relate. time. Yes. Oh my gosh. So, uh, you know, for example, there was a time early on in my illustration career where the way that made the most sense to me at the time was to build my new career by focusing on on gaining a, a large social media following. And um, this was back in the day before Facebook bought Instagram and the algorithm changed and all that garbage. So I built a large audience of followers and it definitely did catapult my business into a new level of success. And by achieving new levels of success in a career I had chosen for myself after this whole like huge process of figuring out what I actually wanted to do, it felt like I was making huge progress on my journey towards pleasing myself instead of being a people pleaser. But by achieving that, by focusing on social media, I was like throwing a huge part of myself and a huge part of my energy into the most people pleasing part of the entire thing, right? Like social media is about 
uh, is about pleasing other people. Um, and it's a really dangerous place if you're trying to learn to truly do your own thing for the first time in your life. So I had this second whole awakening on this journey where I recognized that Instagram was just feeding those old bad habits I had of forming myself and now forming my work into a shape that other people liked. Um, and more than that, it was boosting those habits because it was providing positive reinforcement for it, albeit very superficial positive reinforcement. So since then, I have very purposefully taken a big step back from Instagram and learning to be okay with the fact that that has honestly lost me a ton of followers um, and a ton of that sort of like conventional success that we think of with social media. That's been a huge part of my journey. And I feel like I'm I'm finally starting to get there, but it, it's really challenging. Yeah. Well, I think social media is just one version of this and social media definitely amplifies this sort of need to please and create because, you know, the whole thing is about getting attention from people. Right, right. Absolutely. No, and I think, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, we each just have to figure out, this is going to sound really cliche, but I absolutely think it's true. I think you have to figure out what success actually looks like to you, you know, and not just the cultural narrative of what success looks like for people in your field or people at your age. And, you know, for me at this point, I feel like success looks like living out my definition of the good life. And this is actually something that my husband and I will say to each other all the time. We'll point out something small and say, oh, yeah, that's totally a part of my version of the good life. Like, for example, um, we really love Italy and we hope to live there part time eventually. And um, one of our favorite things about Italy and much of the rest of Europe is that breakfast is often like just a pastry and a cup of coffee. And um, I mean, I love pancakes and things as much as the next person. But if you can have a croissant, like you should absolutely have the croissant, right? So we've started this little tradition where in our house, we usually have a small pastry or something with a cup of coffee for breakfast. And for us, that's part of the good life. And it's a thing that makes it feel like we're truly living our version of the good life. And, um, you know, I think that that's what my definition of success looks like now. You need to have a certain level of financial security and independence to be able to enjoy those things, especially like travel, having time to travel, things like that. Um, so it's definitely still a piece of the puzzle. But when the achievements that you earn are really just part of the building blocks that you're putting in place towards that good life that you envision for yourself, then the good life itself is the prize and not the achievements themselves, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, it totally does. I mean, that, you know, this raises numerous questions for me about, you know, sort of how we define what it means to be a good life or what it means to live a good life. So one thing you mentioned was this whole idea of the cultural narrative about what it means to be an artist. And typically, uh, you know, I grew up in a culture where the whole idea of being an artist is ludicrous. Uh, the whole idea of doing <laughs> sure. creative work is insane. Why would you go and do something so unstable <laughs> or you know, go become a doctor, lawyer, engineer? That's what we're yeah. supposed to do. Uh, so one, you know, in, you know, the context of that cultural narrative, which is still fairly prevalent, how do people actually, you know, know they're, you know, signing up for something that is a situation where nothing is guaranteed and anything is possible? Because, you know, for every person like you who gets to make a living doing their art, there's a lot of people who die penniless and broke. That's just yeah. a reality of the creator economy. It's not a meritocracy. Right. It's you know, an uneven income distribution. These are harsh truths about all of this. So yeah. yet, if somebody says that's what's going to give me a sense of fulfillment to basically go out and even if it means I'm a starving artist, how do we start to unwind this cultural narrative, particularly one that is so predominant and has been just programmed and drilled into us? 
Boy, that's a great question. I mean, it's it's not easy. And I mean, I do think I think it comes down to asking yourself really again what that good life looks like for you and what you're willing to sacrifice to make that happen because a lot of times there are sacrifices involved. And then I think the other thing that you really have to sort of negotiate for yourself is um is the spectrum between creating what you want to make and only what you want to make and creating what you need to make to survive financially, right? So yep. reconciling selling with creating, which is really challenging. And I think that that is a spectrum that every artist has to examine for themselves of like where exactly they want to be on that spectrum. Yeah. It's kind of like, do you want to be James Patterson or Seth Godin? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <clears throat> So, you know, I, I love this whole idea of the good life and um, what it means. What I wonder is you've traveled all over. I mean, I'm from another country. I grew up in a different culture and I've had some exposure to this. What have you seen as differences in how Westerners define what it means to live a good life versus, you know, all the other places that you've been? Oh, that is such a great question. And actually, it's one of the journal prompts in the book is... um you know, what is the good, the definition of the good life in the place that you're in. And, um, I think, I think it takes getting to know a place really well to answer that well. Um, but the one, the one place that I can answer that a little bit more extensively is Greece because I was there for, uh, for 10 years and, um, or not for 10 years for 10 months. (laughs) I would love to be there for 10 years. That would be amazing. Um, but I think, one of the things that struck me most about Greece was the sense of joy and togetherness and how those things go together. Um, you know, America is pretty famously a very individualist country. And that doesn't mean that we're not family focused because we are. Um, but I think we go about it in a very different way. And um, I remember there was this dinner party that I was at fairly early on in my time in Greece. And um, I was somebody, we were having such a good time and somebody made a joke and I was laughing so hard. Um, and I kind of like made this embarrassing little like snorting sound like you do when you're laughing really hard. And, um, and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is just so great. I just can't contain my joy at being here with you all. And, uh, one of the people present said, don't try to contain it. We're Greek. We don't. And, um, (laughs) just, it just really stuck with me about like, being way more present, right? Like I think sometimes a definition of the good life can can be more focused about the future where you're setting mm-hmm. yourself up for the future that you want, the good life that you want down the road when you are a, you know, successful author or whatever else, but I think that Greece really struck me for how much the good life was about being in the present and being grateful for moments as they're happening. Mhm. Yeah. So one of the things that I have thought a lot about uh, is the role that social media has played in altering our sort of perception of what it means to be a good life and the narrative that we perpetuate. And I think you and I, given the nature of the work that we do, are probably guilty of perpetuating this narrative. You travel, I get to do this thing that I think is cool and gives me a lot of freedom. And in that, I think we discount the value of what most people would consider a normal life, right? You know, nine to five job, family and kids somewhere, you know, wherever it is. And I I remember writing about this and I said, who's to say that is not a perfectly good life? And yet we actually, I think in a lot of ways, have done a disservice to our culture by perpetuating this narrative that that is not because we plant seeds of dissatisfaction where there are none. 
And I wonder what you have to say about this. Not a question, but a statement. No, ab- <laughs> absolutely. I agree with your statement. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting. I am part of a artist cooperative uh, here in Boise, and um, I've gotten to know a lot of other artists. And, you know, there are potters and and even people who make like sort of bath and body kind of stuff. It's sort of just like a handmade um, cooperative. And uh, I've had some really interesting conversations with people there who still are at their their day jobs um, or, you know, people who went full time with their business, but then ended up deciding that that wasn't what they wanted, you know, that it was sort of taking over their lives. And what they wanted was just a steady job that they didn't need to think about. And then to get to do this thing on the side that wasn't influenced by the, the need to make money or wanting to monetize it at all. Um, and so I really feel like it's about figuring out just what you want. It can be whatever you want it to be, whether that's, um, you know, having this more steady job that's not something that takes up as much of your energy or time, um, or, you know, going full throttle with a creative business. I think it, it really is about just whatever you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, you know, because I, I started the, the podcast back when I had a day job, which was like the last day job I had in the last you know job anybody would ever hire me for. But um, <laughs> I remember feeling like there's this profound sense of freedom that you get to experiment, to play, to try different things when you're not dependent on your art for your livelihood. Uh, in fact, I think that often you make better work because it's funny if you look at some of the most successful projects, you know, on the internet, things like Humans of New York, things um, that have just become wildly popular. Often those people are not people who quit their jobs and started to like follow all these online marketing strategies. They just did something they enjoyed doing. And that's so counterintuitive, particularly given how much advice there is out there on, you know, how to grow a business, how to optimize your website, that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I think your point about like what you can be sort of feel like you're being pressured into doing is really um, is really key, like, you know, pressured into doing something because you feel like it's going to catapult your career to the next level or or continue to um, advance your financial success. Um, And I in particular, I found out that the pressure to sell, I feel like I've been very careful about this and not letting it overly affect the content of what that I what I want to make. But I do feel like sometimes the pressure to sell tries to shape the narrative of who I am as an artist. And that has at times been really challenging. Um, I think for working creatives, there's often a pressure to brand yourself as the something person, you know, like the person who makes minimalist landscapes or a very specific kind of music. Like we see this all the time with bands, right? Like when an album is a hit, people kind of want the same thing from the next album. And that's definitely something that I've seen in my field. Um, many of my peers who have creative small businesses and have achieved large followings and have sellout launches for their products, they make one very specific thing. And it kind of makes sense, right? Like there's so many people in the world and so many creatives to follow. And it's almost um, it's almost challenging to sort of keep track of them all. And you need a specific thing to latch onto to make them memorable and relatable. But mm-hmm. I think once you've achieved success with that one thing, it's hard to find the freedom to do something else. And you can kind yeah. of feel backed into a corner creatively. Um, and it, it sort of comes back to that cultural narrative we've been talking about surrounding creative work where you know, you you feel like if you're making money at all, you should be grateful and you should just keep doing that thing that's making you money because you're so lucky to be making money. 
And um, this is something I've really struggled with. You know, uh, my first book is called You're Weird, and it's all about uniqueness and individuality, which is something I really, really believe in. Um, I really want to live in a world where everyone is totally comfortable being quirky. And I think that both individual people and society um, as a whole benefit when people are their authentic selves and when everyone's quirks are allowed to flourish and come to the forefront. And um, I really loved making the book too, because I got to do that myself in the process of making it, um, which was just a total blast. Um, But once I had published a book on weirdness, it kind of felt like I had to be the weirdness lady. (laughs) (laughs) Just go around and be strange everywhere you went. (laughs) Yeah. Or like at least feel like the content of what I made next had to be about individuality too, or sort of be, be tied to your weird in some way. And I just wasn't feeling like I wanted that to be my whole thing, you know, like I want to be able to champion individuality, but also create things about the other things that I wanted to champion. So for a long time, I really struggled with what I wanted my next book to be. Um, I just, I fell head over heels with the process of making books while I was making Your Weird. And I knew I wanted to make another one, but it really felt like it had to make sense with Your Weird so that people would know sort of who I was and how to categorize me as an artist. And all the ideas that I could come up with along those lines, just they weren't fully realized or they weren't things I wanted to do. And as a result, they didn't feel genuine because they wouldn't have been genuine. Um, Mm. and so it took me a long time to realize that what I really wanted to make was a travel journal. Um, Mm. especially because again, I feel like travel has just completely shaped me as a person and I wanted to bring other people the tools, um, to do that for themselves while they're out in the world. Uh, and it made, I mean, absolutely no sense with your weird, (laughs) right? Um, but I decided to just go for it. And I'm, I'm so glad that I did because I really, really enjoyed making this book and I can't wait to get it out into the world. Yeah. I mean, I can relate because I think the, the funny thing is people know me as a podcast host and I I gave the keynote speech for podcast movement one year. It was the first year they did a conference and the founders of the conference contacted me. They said, will you give the keynote? I said, yes, on one condition. They said, what? I don't want to talk. And I said, I don't want to talk about podcasting. (laughs) And and I told them, I said, you know, I'm a storyteller and audio is just one medium in which I tell stories. And I think the point is that I never wanted to be defined by just one thing. And, you know, it's funny you talk about your weird. I I was with my friend Kel Newport. uh, I was on his podcast recently because I was in Washington, D.C. And we were talking about Mark Manson who, um, you know, has this crazy successful book that has made him got, you know, ungodly amounts of money and probably is one of the most successful nonfiction books of all time. Uh, And then he followed it up with another book called Everything is Fucked. And the publisher naturally wanted another (laughs) one, you know, another book with the title fucking it. And apparently the entire publishing industry has lost their damn minds because they think that you just put (laughs) fuck in the title of a book and it'll be a bestseller. But that's another naturally. That's another rant that we don't need to go off on. But apparently he said, that's it. He was done. He didn't want to basically keep putting, you know, fuck books out in the world, which is the only way I can think about, you know, which just to be clear, those aren't porn. They're actual nonfiction books, but that's just, you know, kind of the category he created. Right, Um, right. But to that point, like, you know, if you're forever defined by this one thing, it's kind of, it's really limiting, I think. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think that's something that, um, that we all don't really think about. Like, I think when you think about starting a side hustle or starting your own business, there's so much that's focused on just getting to the point where you are doing okay, right? And your business is making money. And then there's this sort of question of like, what 
comes next. And there, there aren't all that many resources out there for that. Like if you're looking to start a business, you can find a lot of advice and, and good practical stuff. But when it comes to like, okay, I'm successful, quote unquote, what do I do next? There's really not a lot out there, um, to help you on that journey. And, uh, I think it's really hard if you are, continuing to evolve as a person, which of course we all should be. You know, I started my business when I was 25 and uh, now I'm 33, which isn't all that much older, but a lot has happened in eight years. And I find that the art that I want to make now is kind of different from what I wanted to make when I first started. And I want that to be okay for people, you know, and still like me as an artist and like my work, but understand that it's going to change over time, um, which is easier said than done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh one thing that I wonder about, you've traveled all over the world. And, you know, we were talking about definitions of a good life um, and cultural narratives. What are the things that you have found that are different about the cultural narratives uh, around what it means to be an artist in different cultures? Ooh, that's a really good question. I, you know, honestly, I haven't done a ton of long-term travel since I became an artist. Um I, you know, I was a teacher when I was living in Greece. And since then I've traveled, but not, not to the level that I've like lived in another place and really gotten to know the narratives about being an artist there. Um, and I'm trying to sort of rack my brain for what I remember in Greece. I mean, I do know that, um, at least from what I experienced, there's a pretty profound respect for writers in Greece. Um, you know, there's, there's a number of famous writers that come from Greece. Both, I mean, <laughs> yeah, obviously, exactly. obviously going back like centuries and centuries, but then also just like Nikos Kazantzakis and, um, who wrote Zorba the Greek and, um, you know, a few other sort of contemporary people. And, um, so I think that there's, there's a respect for artistic tradition for sure, but I can't, I can't really speak to the career artist and what, how that's looked at by, mm. by the Greeks, at least at this point. Yeah. Wow. Um, so one final question, or two final questions for you. You know, as an artist who was raised by somebody in our education system, what role do you think that the arts need to play in education? Because I think that we have, you know, kind of gone so far in the opposite direction to emphasize practicality that I would have never considered anything like an artistic you know, major while I was in college. I mean, I came from an Indian family that would have been totally impractical and would have never gotten me a job. Not that, you know, my degree got me a job either. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, you've kind of been able to see both sides of this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what you just said was key, which is like your degree didn't get you a job. And I think that's true for a lot of people, but I think that we should remove the um, any negative connotation with that idea and just say like, you know, your degree can just be training for who you are. Um, I mean, I, I have a master's in literature and now I draw for a living, right? But I find that it still really creeps into the art that I make. Um, like for instance, I don't make a ton of realism uh, or realistic in influenced pieces. My pieces tend to all have kind of like a thesis behind them. Um, and I think that that comes from my education and my background um, and the way that I was sort of trained to think. So I think that school is really about training thinkers and training you to um, see the world in in a unique way, in your own way, right? And so to a certain extent, I feel like it doesn't really matter what your degree is in. It just shapes you into the person 
that um, that interacts with the way that's going to make you create what you're going to create. Um, and to that end, I think that art is incredibly important because I think that you need to be able to think in all different kinds of ways to be a really well-rounded, successful person. So you need to be able to think logically and practically and scientifically, but also creatively. And that I think is how you build a successful individual. So I do think that art is a really important part of education. Yeah. Um, well, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews uh, on the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think, I think the thing that fights unmistakability is the influence of other people. So, of course, we as people, we need to encourage each other and lift each other up and support each other. And all of that is wonderful and necessary and genuinely helpful. But what I mean by the influence of other people is any external force that shapes or tries to shape you or what you're doing. And I think that that takes you in the opposite direction of unmistakability. Um, and the more that you can shape your own perceptions, experience, and future, the more unmistakable the output that you generate is, um, the more distinctive you are, and therefore the more distinctive what you make is. Um, so we've, you know, we've talked in this interview about people pleasing, and I think you have to do the exact opposite. Um, because I think each person at their core is unmistakable. And, um, you know, I do think we need other people to do that well and to be the best versions of ourselves that will create really well. Um, I myself have found I don't make very good art if I spend too much time by myself. But I think that needs to be in a supporting role for unmistakability to flourish. I think you are unmistakable when you are your most yourself. Mm. Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work and everything that you're up to? Yeah. So um, you can find me at katepeterson.art. Um, that is my website where you can find my book and um, all the fun things that I make to go with the books. And yeah, that's where I'm at. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a delight. My pleasure. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.